Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show's weekend review. My name is Jack Collins and I'll be your host today in this first of our live rooms. And I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by the one and only Mike Zimmerman of the Athletic. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing well. We just we just saw an entertaining match between Arsenal and Manchester United. Looking forward to diving in and hearing hearing all these fans' thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. So this live room is an opportunity to hear what you guys have to say about the weekend's action. Athletic subscribers will be able to see that they're in the app. They can ask to come on stage. So we're keen to hear your thoughts, also to see your comments. And we'll work through what has been an incredibly entertaining weekend of football so far. Obviously still some games going on, but we can't Wait to hear what you have to say about this weekend. We'll try and get as much, get across as much football as we can. But Mike, we'll start with that Arsenal-Manchester United game. Arsenal with a late winner. That's 19 games they've played now. They're halfway through the season. And they're at Centurion's pace. That is 50 points in those 19 games. It's a stunning turnaround from where Arsenal were last season and it does feel like these moments just keep happening for this Arsenal side under Arteta. And and I think there needs to be credit given to uh, the Arsenal front office giving Arteta time to to develop his squad because we've seen in the past couple of seasons there were plenty of times where we could have easily seen Arteta sacked because of form but he was given the time to develop his squad and I think we've seen the results of that and like you mentioned, Arsenal just keep, keep seeming to, to grab late winners at Centurion pace right now, 50 points. I, I think we, we keep saying week after week are Arsenal true title contenders, and I think we, we have to get rid of that narrative at this point. They're clear title challengers, and I think at this point you can say they are, they are the favorites right now with the game in hand, five points ahead of City. Yeah, I mean, look, City got a, a big win today as well, another Erling Haaland hat-trick, silencing some of the discussion that's been going on around him. I was just having a conversation with an Arsenal fan, Davis, on Twitter, and he said only Arsenal would have to continue to prove their credentials in a season where they've got plus 28 goal difference and have only lost one game. And my kind of response to it was, I love this Arsenal team, but there's a lack of historic evidence that we've got. And, you know, there is a game where we haven't seen them play Manchester City yet, obviously. So, yes, they have that five-point gap and the game in hand. We haven't seen a game between Arsenal and City yet. And I think there's a kind of level of until a team wins a title, or, you know, obviously Arsenal have won titles before, but this iteration of Arsenal wins a title. You have to continually prove your credentials until the trophy is won. But I don't think they have to prove their credentials anymore that they're in 
that they're title contenders? Because I think that question, as you say, has been completely blown out of the water. The question is, until we see Arsenal actually lift that trophy, whereas we have seen City go on these incredible runs towards the end of seasons and Liverpool fans, I know, will be sitting there going, yeah, we've seen this before where they win, you know, 17, 18 games in a row and, and, and can actually drive that kind of final hurdle. We saw Arsenal fall at said final hurdle last year. Now, this is a better Arsenal team than that, fine. But you still have to kind of look at it and with no historic evidence, it's up to Arsenal to kind of continually prove this every week if they want to lift the title. But I don't think there's any questions anymore about them being contenders. Yeah, and I think everybody, please leave your comments in the comments section as well. Request to come on stage. Love to hear your thoughts. Patrick S. says, ask me again about chances in April. And I think that seems to be the majority opinion of Arsenal supporters is that they they don't want to get ahead of themselves. And, and I think that's kind of the, the best attitude to have because the further you look ahead, the more you're going to slip up. And, and, I, and I think as of now, Arsenal just want to take one game at a time. They don't want to think about April, May. And, and I think that's, that's kind of the attitude that Arteta has had with this young squad. Um, you know, we've, we've seen... Uh, Cheyenne K, I hope I'm pronouncing that name right. Do you think the signing of Trossard will make a difference? I think it will. I think we saw flashes there immediately of, of what he can provide to this Arsenal team. You know, that directness, that drive uh, from the wing in a way that I think obviously Martinelli provides. So that, that's, there's a kind of question here of what is Trossard come in for? And I think in terms of depth, if that means that Martinelli and Saka are fire, fighting fit, for every single game towards this run-in, then Trossard's already got to the point where he's making a difference, right? You get to that point where you go, okay, how many goals slash assists or goal contributions is Leandro Trossard going to provide to this Arsenal team in this Premier League campaign? And I don't think that's necessarily the right question. I think the question is actually, what does he provide in terms of rotation? Obviously, they have European competition to think about. There's domestic cup football still to think about. When you're looking at these, you're going, okay, well, Trossard coming in here gives you the option to rotate. It means they're not overworking players. That fatigue that we've seen towards the end of seasons, and we've seen, you know, in a year where a lot of players went off to the World Cup, where there was different elements of things going on, does he just give them that extra body, which they know they can rely on in terms of coming off the bench to make things happen, but also in terms of, of getting those rotations? I think that's the key that Trossard brings to this team. And for that reason, yeah, I do. I think he makes it, I think he does make a difference, even if it's not necessarily the most obvious one on, on the pitch in the Premier League. So so that's kind of where I'm where I'm at on it. But Mike, do we wanna see if anyone wants to jump in on stage? Yeah, let's uh let's go with Opayemi. Hopefully I am pronouncing that again. I apologize if I am pronouncing the name wrong. Yes, I'm here, guys. Um, thanks for having me, first of all, um, on this on this platform. Um, I just want to say, uh, it's it was an incredible display from the Arsenal boys tonight. Of course, there are fifty points, and they were not here last season. Even even the invisible Arsenal team um, that um, that went unbeaten for the season was not at this stage on 50 points. So what you have there is an incredibly brilliant team that um, Ateta um, is building or has got at the moment. And they just need to keep pushing. 
However, something inside me says Arsenal is still going to bottle it at some point. And um, the, 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 the trophy is still going to go to um, Man City. But at least it's, 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 it's going on now and it's, it's good for, for the Gunners. So I think they can only um, keep improving and hopefully um, maybe, maybe, Maybe just win it at the end. Yeah, I mean, no, yeah, I, I, mean I, think, I, I think I think you make maybe the correct point, point in the fact that it doesn't matter that Arsenal. That if, you know, yes, obviously, at this point in the in the season, is it is it a huge kind of use the word bottle? I think it is the key here, and I, I don't think this is a bottle job. If, if Arsenal don't win the title from here, I still think there's plenty to be positive about in, in this Arsenal season. Yes, it's going to look strange in terms of where the points differences are. And, and Mike, I'd, I'd love your thoughts on this as well, in that there's going to be a lot of chat now, especially if Arsenal do win that game in hand, that with 18 games to go, they had an eight-point lead. Yes, without playing City either time, but there was an eight-point lead there. And actually, I don't know, if, if, if City win those two games against Arsenal and Arsenal slip up at, at some other point and City win this title by going on another of these mental runs that we've seen them do in, in season gone past, does that make this a bad season for Arsenal? And I think the answer to that question is, is no. I think the answer is still that Arsenal are progressing in a major way. They look incredibly dynamic. We're seeing aspects of not only the kind of city teams that Arteta was part of in this Arsenal side and the way that they play, but also I think the kind of resilience and energy that Liverpool have brought to title races in, in times gone by. Now, whether that's sustainable all the way through the season, we're yet to find out. But generally, I think you're looking at it and thinking, whatever happens from here, unless something catastrophically goes wrong, this has been a positive, massively positive season for Arsenal, even if they don't win that title. Yes, absolutely. And I think, yes, the main goal right now is the title. And I think it has to be with where they are on the table, five points ahead with a game in hand. But if they happen to maybe lose it by a couple points to City... I think you, any Arsenal fan is going to look back and say this was a successful season. However, I think there are so many narratives saying that Arsenal is going to bottle it and, and City is going to go on this run because that's what we've seen in the past. And at some point, narratives are going to change. And I think this is Arsenal's opportunity now to, whether they win it or not, just c- cement themselves as a title challenger year in and year out. And I think because what we saw from Liverpool back in 2018 and 2019 when they lost to City by one point and we, we kept saying, okay, Liverpool needs to show they are title contenders. And they did going up to the last day of the season. And I think that's kind of where Arsenal are now where it's not about necessarily winning the title. It's about showing they can compete for a full season with Manchester City. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, th- I think that's it. And I thought this comment from Jose, again, I apologize, that's incorrect. So definitely nervous, but this is one of those games which gives you belief we can really do it. I, I think that's it. You know, these moments keep happening. And if these moments continue to happen through the season and these big games and big hurdles are overcome, then I think that, you know, why, why not in, in that regard? But I just th- I think the narratives are going to be really, really heavily based in, oh, someone has, to, someone has to bottle it or someone has to make a mistake. And, and there'll be questions, you know, if, if, if Erling Haaland scores uh, a Premier League record in a single season and City don't win the league, there'll be a narrative around that as well. So I, I do find it interesting just how the, these things 
these things happen and how they're framed. But I think right now we're just looking at this Arsenal team and thinking, well, what a team. I'd be interested to, you know, to hear some thoughts about Manchester United today because obviously missing Casemiro, some key players out. And yeah, as well, United against what is a side that we've all come to, to really, I think, respect and, and understand are the real deal in many ways. I've got up a good performance there with an 11 that they wouldn't have been particularly happy with before the game and, and, and not their strongest side. This is a United team still on the up as well. Yeah, and I think we're, we're getting a lot of comments about United. Manchester United needs to improve today. Uh, was a reality check. That's from Bernard. Uh, John P. says, Wambasaka, three years at United and still no idea about defensive positioning. There are definitely a lot of mixed mixed comments about Manchester United, and we'd love to hear your thoughts, request to come on stage. Um, I think overall, it was a good performance from United. I, I think what we saw was just a, a very good tactical game between Arteta and Ten Hag. Um, yes, I think United still has some flaws. I think we need to, I, I think Ten Hag needs to figure out what to do with Anthony because he seemed to be kind of lost. Um, we, we've seen a midfield of, of McTominay, uh, Erickson. I'm not sure how they play maybe in a double pivot. That's still up in the air. There's not really a, a backup plan for Casemiro. Uh, but overall, I think as a United fan, you have to be happy with that performance. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. Um, let's bring someone else up on stage. Let's bring Ross on and see what Ross has to say. Hello, Ross. Are you there? Hello? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yeah, I got you, mate. Oh, perfect. Yeah, uh, just picking up on what you were saying there at the end, I think I think United fans need to look at the positives here because this is a, this is an Arsenal team that have, you know, at times it's not always looked like they're progressing under Arteta. And I think the past few seasons and where they finished in the league, certainly, uh, you know, not going off of performances last season where it looked like they were going to get Champions League near the end there. Uh, I think United fans can be really happy with the progression that they've seen under Ten Hag so far. You know, he's uh, he's come in and... I know he said that he couldn't work magic, but it, it certainly seems like uh, he's got his wand out at Old Trafford. Yeah, I think that's completely fair enough. I, I think when you're, you know, we're looking at this United side and going, yeah, there was obviously a slow start. Obviously, it was going to take some time to turn things around in, in terms of bringing those players in, getting them settled. But generally, I, I think that United have been very impressive. Now, today, there's going to be mixed reactions to that performance because Arsenal controlled it. And yeah, United are you know, mere seconds, I would argue, away from coming away with a point. And and actually, you look at that goal, Arsenal deserved their winner, I think, generally, because of the way that the game panned out and, and the kind of relentless pressure of it. But there's still an element of, of kind of fortuity to the way that that goal goes in. Obviously, a couple of, of nicks in the box and Kethier is, is incredibly alive and alert to it in order to, to not at home. And, and that's brilliant. But generally, when, when you look at this, I think that United will have looked at that game and gone, OK, we're a little bit under strength. This is an Arsenal side who are sweeping all comers in many ways. And there's only a little bit of, of, of bad luck in that way at the end. That, that's actually meant that they, they've lost the game. And I, I think that's interesting, Mike. Let's go to a couple of comments. We, said we have, uh, this is Arsenal's last chance to win the league, Bernard K. Not sure I agree with that, Bernard, but... Um... I do understand that other teams are strengthening, such as Newcastle. You know, City, you're going to spend. Um, I do understand where you're coming from, but I, I do think that you have to just take the positives that we've seen from Arsenal this season and, and believe that this is something that's sustainable. Um, 
let's see. We got Rajesh saying, was Zinchenko onside? It was very tight. Um, at least on the broadcast in the U.S., we didn't get those those lines to see whether he was. We only got the still frame. And I think it was very even, very close. And I'm actually glad they they, they kept the goal because that would have been so – it was too tight to overturn. Yeah, I mean, obviously we've seen those overturn in the past, those really kind of on-the-edge decisions. But, but generally, I think when you have a moment like that, it does feel like, especially when one side has been so on top for those minutes of the last kind of since since the United equaliser, really, it felt mostly like one way traffic. And then when you get to that point and, and those goals are, are being checked, I think it would have felt unfair if he had been ruled offside. I mean, look, it's one of those where obviously you want the correct decisions to be made. But I think in in terms of the spirit of how that game played out, that it felt relatively correct for, for that goal to stand. And, you know, what a day for Nketiah as well, who, who who worked incredibly hard, who stretched the lines brilliantly, I thought, uh, and, and and ultimately got that reward for, for persistence towards the end. So, yeah, a, a good day for him. And, and it, was, it felt like the right decision had, had, had been arrived at. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Let's move on down the table. And surprisingly, yesterday's early game was a mid-table clash between Liverpool and Chelsea, something we didn't expect to say probably at the beginning of the season. Um, A rather boring game. Um, not, not a lot of quality on display. Uh, I thought Chelsea probably edged it out in terms of performance. Um, but, but neither team really, really put on a display that, that deserved anything more than a point. Um, you would love to hear everybody else's comments. Uh, I think the, there's just two clubs that are, are in a little disarray right now. I, I think Liverpool have an aging midfield, wasn't able to, to control the game. Uh, and I think a big part of Klopp's uh, style is a midfield that's 
that's ba- that that's built on pressing. And I, I don't think you're going to have a midfield of Tiago, Harvey Elliott, um, you know, Henderson coming off the bench that are 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 going to press at at the level that Klopp wants to. And I think that's where Liverpool is struggling. Chelsea, on the other hand, um, I, I think. W- w- Potter started out very, very hot with five straight wins and then has just seemed to fall off. And Jack, I'd love to get your thoughts on what's going on with Grant Potter and Chelsea because I, I'm, I'm not sure I'm able to pinpoint exactly what's going wrong with them. Well, I think there's some, some interesting points in, in the fact that this felt like a game with two midfields in kind of disarray, right? And and you talk about Liverpool's midfield and, and I think you're absolutely right to do so, although I thought Bacetic did did well again. Um, Naby Keita obviously played well in the game against Wolves, didn't quite live up to those levels yesterday. And, and Thiago, you know, has come out and spoken today, I think, in, in, in you know, general terms about the fact that there's not only physiological, but also psychological hangovers from, from last season. You add that to an ageing team. And, and I think you're always going to be at a point where it, it's going to be difficult to reach those levels again. You know, this is a massive Massive rebuilding season for Liverpool. Now, when you looked at the start of the season, that maybe wasn't quite so apparent because last year, the likes of Fabinho still kind of at the top of his game. And, and alongside that, I think everything kind of worked nicely. Now, it's only taken a couple of those players to fall off from that peak to, to take away from it. But it, it does show you, as you said, Mike, how important these Liverpool midfields are. You kind of look at Chelsea in the same light and you think, right, Jorginho's in there. We know about Jorginho's technical ability and his physical shortcomings. Those things aren't, aren't news to anyone. I, I thought Lewis Hall did okay uh, in, in the middle. It, it's not going to be easy for him. He's playing in, in a number of different positions at the moment. Uh, and I think that Chelsea are, are deeply lacking in those areas as well, especially with Zachariah out, obviously got injured in, in that Fulham game and looking at sort of a four-week spell on the, on the sidelines. It, it does just feel like Chelsea and Liverpool in this game came into this and were like, it, does anyone want this midfield battle? Because it, it didn't feel that way. And I think when you look at these two sides and, and where they're at, the fact that this was a nil-nil draw doesn't shock many people, I would imagine. It, it, it's kind of, you're looking at these different different teams who play in different styles, sure, but who fundamentally, I think, have similar problems in the centre of the park. And let Chelsea have a various issues, I think, back up in terms of who's going to actually step in there for, for Rhys James when, when he's absent, leaves them short. I don't think Mark Kukurea has has done what people expected of him. But across the course of this Chelsea team, the problems just seem to run incredibly deep. I think Liverpool's problems are, are maybe a little bit more obvious um, but it's impacting so heavily on the rest of the side because of, of what a Klopp side do. And look, Stephen here says, how much are we even looking at a Klopp team anymore? And how much of Liverpool, how Liverpool play now is based on Pep Linder's tactics, which are much less about intense pressing? I think that might be a, a victim of circumstance as opposed to anything else, really. You, you look at what this team are doing and you look at the injured, uh, the injury lists, you look at the players who just haven't hit the, those peaks again this season and whether that is a fallout from last season or whether it's just them coming to the tail ends of their careers. I think that Klopp's hand has been majorly forced in that he can't do what he genuinely wants to do. And so he's having to revert to different issues. I mean, Mike, you're, you're a Liverpool fan, but generally I, I think we're looking at a season here where Liverpool are going to have to set that, hit, hit that big reset button in the middle of the park because there aren't many other options. No, I, and I completely agree, and and I, and I think we've seen that with Klopp trying to get some youth into 
into that midfield and try and maybe phase out a little of the Fabinho, Thiago, and, and Henderson midfield. Um, I also think a big problem with Liverpool is that we don't know where Cody Gakpo's best position is. Normally, we think on the left wing, but we've seen the past few games that, that Klopp has played him through the middle. And I think even when Darwin Nunez came on in the game yesterday, Nunez went out to the left and Gakpo stayed in the middle. And I'm not really sure that's that's the best thing to do. Um, you know, I it's tough because you're trying to get him acclimated into a squad that he's he's new to. And maybe playing through the middle is the, the best way because it's easiest to just make those runs. But I think from, from a Liverpool perspective, I think we've seen – Darwin Nunez being better at making those runs behind the back line, using his pace, whereas when Gakpo plays through the middle, he's almost non-existent. And I think that's a big issue as well. Yeah, I, I think that's completely fair enough. And and I think that in terms of stretching play, it's been a little bit difficult for Liverpool in terms of those things. And, and obviously, there are going to be hangovers from having a such a settled front line and then changing it and then not, you know, an alternative hangover from the amount of injuries who would have maybe given this a little bit of an easier landing run in terms of integrating new signings. But I think it's spot on in that we've seen Cody Hakpo at PSV play off that left-hand side and be, I think that's his natural role. I think he's excellent cutting in from that side and making things happen. We've seen him at the World Cup playing for the Netherlands in a front two or as a 10 behind those front two, and not really as an out-and-out out nine on his own. And so therefore, when, when you're looking at how he's being utilised, you kind of want to get him in his ideal positions as early as possible, because by playing him as the front man, I, look, I think there could be a future at some point for Cody Hakpo playing as a kind of Roberto Firmino-esque nine. But if you're going to do that, you need someone on that left-hand side, as well as Salah on the right, being able to, to stretch defences because it doesn't make any sense if you have that player dropping in without with, with a player like Harvey Elliott, who I love, but generally I think likes to combine as opposed to getting in behind. When you have those two in, in conjunction with each other, there's no stress over the top of back lines. And, and, and it does mean that you look at it and go, OK, how are you getting the best out of Cody Hapo? If he's dropping into these gaps, if he's playing as that kind of removed nine, if you will, you have to get him into a position where he has options getting ahead of him. And yesterday I thought that was lacking. And, you know, you combine that with the fact that Mo Salah feels off colour at the moment. He feels that he's not getting the best out of uh, of how of the, the opportunity he's getting, sure, but also the fact that it just doesn't feel like it's clicking for him. I, I think all of these things tie into each other. And I think when you look at these teams, it's getting really interesting in terms of they're trying to find solutions on the fly in a, in a season where we've had plenty of injuries. We've had a crowded schedule in terms of the World Cup. And it makes it more difficult to try to create those solutions when players keep falling like flies. I mean, you look at Nick's comment here. He says, I think the Klopp is showing that he trusts players he has, whether at the end of their career or at the beginning. Seeing him putting out guys like Ben Doak gives a lot of hope for the future. When guys are injured, come back, I think the team will have a resurgence. I'm hoping so, at least. I think that's a fair you know, point to be looking at because when you're putting in these new players and you're hoping that they're going to make immediate impacts in a team that is basically demanding that they step up immediately because of the issues that have plagued side throughout the season, it, it makes it very difficult to integrate. Whereas if you have them in a settled system and you look, you know, we obviously we talked about Trossard at Arsenal earlier, but actually you look at that and you go, he's gone in there. He's obviously only been in the camp for a couple of days, but they've asked him to go in and do what he does best. 
in a system that you'd think already caters to what Trossard is good at. Hakpo is coming in here and being asked to play a position which he hasn't hugely thrived in. He hasn't often played as a solo nine, especially one who's asked to kind of lead the line. And Chelsea have the same issue, I think, in, in Kai Havertz. Generally, we're just looking at these things and going, OK, well, that's obviously not going to get the best out of him straight away in, in a way that maybe Trossard will fall into because the system is built and it's there rather than trying to find solutions off the cuff. Well, I, I do want to kind of flip flip over to Kai Havertz and Chelsea. Um, Kai Havertz played number nine yesterday with Conor Gallagher and Mason Mount behind him. Is Kai Havertz a number nine, or does he need maybe? A, is he a a striker to play behind a number nine? Because we've seen so many different formations with with um, Grand Potter's team. Yesterday they played a three four two one. I'm not sure Kai Havertz is best utilized as a number nine. I think if you're going to play Kai Havertz as a nine, you have to utilize his strengths, and Kai Havertz is incredibly good at ghosting away from players. The player he was most compared to before he joined Chelsea was very much Thomas Muller. And if you, you look at Thomas Muller's career, there have been times where he's played as a nine, but I think his best work has come when there's been a player in front of him. You know, most notably Robert Lewandowski who was there for so many years at Bayern. He's played that kind of 10 role or second striker, I think it's probably a little bit of a, of a stretch to call it call it a 10. But that second striker role for both Bayern and Germany uh, is where we've seen the best, I think, of, of Thomas Müller. Yes, a little bit on the right wing. And I think that there is obviously that kind of vibe about Havertz. He's brilliant at ghosting into spaces when people are occupying defenders. And I think that his use as a nine is more to do with necessity than anything else. You also, you know, Bernard says here, Chelsea have a perfectly good number nine marooned in Italy. And I think <laughs> this is a fair enough point. And obviously there's going to be criticism questions over Romelu Lukaku based on what happened when he was back in England. But I also think that you look at the way Thomas Tuchel set up an attack and it didn't suit Lukaku's game at all. But the way that, that Tuchel wants to play is often, or wanted to play at Chelsea at the very least, was with this fluid moving front three that were able to occupy different positions. And Lukaku didn't fit into that system at all. And I think that if you have Havertz as a nine, you need to basically be employing, employing the same thing we were talking about, about Hakpo. You have to have runners who are willing to stretch either side of him in that he can drop into those deeper spaces and then he can hit the box at, at times where it suits him. I think he's been asked to do something very different at, at the moment. And Sean says this, he says it can be a false nine like Firmino, though, and should Chelsea be looking at wingers on either side of him to attack space? I think this is what we're looking at. I think this is why we're seeing the signings of the likes of, of Mudrik, of Nani Madweke, who are players who will, especially Mudrik, look to get in behind on regular occasions because I think it gets more out of Kai Havertz. But I do agree with you, Mike, in that I think generally the best of Havertz will be seen when he's playing behind a, a player or a, or a pure number nine in the mould of someone like Lewandowski. Now, whether we're going to see that Chelsea or not, I don't know. There's obviously rumours today about Havertz being desired by Bayern Munich. Um, but whether that's as a nine or someone to be a long-term Thomas Muller replacement, we're not quite sure yet. Let's kind of flip towards tomorrow, Jack. I know, I know you've got a big game coming up with Fulham <laughs> against Spurs. 
Uh, we have a couple comments in here. Jack, our, our, uh, our full Meshuin for the top four with United's loss today. Um, are you kind of in the same breath as Arsenal fans where you don't want to look too much into the future? Yeah, I think so. I think what you're looking at, and, and you know, Marco Silva said it time and time again about Fulham, is the fact that it's game by game. He's like, this is how we won the championship title last season. It was one game at a time. Obviously, it's easy to get excited given Fulham's position in the table. Uh, and it's easy for fans to be getting a bit of a nosebleed. And I think it's absolutely great that, that there is this dream of European football that remains on the table for Fulham for as long as this good streak continues. I still think you look at a game like Tottenham and you go, Fulham have to be considered underdogs for that game in the same way that Fulham had to be considered underdogs against Chelsea in the game last week in the fact that these are teams on paper who have the capacity to make things happen at any given time. And yes, Chelsea were in a bad form. And yes, you'd argue that, that Spurs are in, in, in a little bit of a rut themselves. But equally, you still look at these games and go, well, can, can this Spurs team beat Fulham? And the answer is yes. But Fulham are incredibly well organised. There's a togetherness in the camp that doesn't seem to be prevalent that much in the Premier League this season. And as long as it is one game at a time and things keep going and Fulham remain defensively organised, remain very clear in what they're trying to do, but fluid enough to be able to adapt to different opposition, I think with the fact that these big guns, especially Chelsea and Liverpool, but I think Tottenham probably come slightly into this conversation as well, despite the fact that they're higher up in the table. You look at this and go, well, why not? You know, can you can you get a result there? Can Fulham get a result tomorrow night against Tottenham? Yes. Will they? I would be loath to suggest that it's it's the obvious thing to, to to happen because of the quality in this Spurs side. But I think Fulham have shown that we're we're capable of of making things happen and making the right calls regularly. And, and, and there's lots to like about this Fulham side. So one game at a time. But yeah, I, I mean, obviously fans are dreaming and, and rightly so, given performances so far. On the other side with Tottenham, they sit fifth in the table right now at 33 points, six behind uh, Manchester United in fourth. It seems like the sky is falling with Tottenham. We have fans not happy with the way Conte plays. Um, it's just not attractive football right now. Is it is it more about the manager? Is it about player recruitment? I, what's kind of the the glaring problem with Tottenham right now? Because things aren't going well, but they're not as bad as the table reads. No, and and I think even actually the the question is well, they're fifth in the table. It's okay, you know. Yes, they're six points off the top four, but it's not a dreadful season by anyone's imagination, right? We're, we're looking at this and going, okay, you know, most teams would kill to finish fifth. Now, obviously, Conte was brought in with this kind of win-now mentality, which hasn't worked out in the way that maybe you would have expected it to. And the fact that Conte has ended up at loggerheads with the board and it looks like his contract might not now be renewed and he might walk away from Spurs at the end of the season, I think a lot of people are going to be like, well, that, that means this has been a failure. But equally, Tottenham were in the Champions League or places at the end of last season, and they're one point off or one place off them at, at the moment. And when you look at the fact that Newcastle have obviously emerged quicker than many were expecting, we've talked about how good we think this Arsenal side are. We're talking about the fact that Erling Haaland is on course to set Premier League scoring records in his first season at Manchester City, and the fact we have a resurgent Manchester United under Eric Ten Hag, who've been very, very impressive in long spells this season. 
it's not you're looking at this and going Tottenham have missed a massive opportunity. I don't think you're looking at it in a in a slightly different light, and and so. Yes, I, I think this is it from, from RPM. who says Tottenham season is only looking as bad as it is uh, because Arsenal are on top of the league looking like title contenders. And I do think that obviously exacerbates the problem when you're looking across at your local rivals who, you know, Arsenal and Tottenham have been in, in very, variously similar camps, I think, for quite a long time. It's why the North London derby has been such an entertaining fixture for the past, what, decade? Because the two teams have never been that far away from each other. The fact that Arsenal have suddenly blitzed the top of the league and are on Centurion's pace, I think rubs salt in the wounds of, of what's going on at Tottenham. But I don't think it's it's absolutely dreadful. What I do think is weird is this inability to play in the first 45 minutes of games. Now, obviously, that's going to look weird when they scored two first-half goals against Manchester City. But you look at the timings of those goals, 44 and 47, Tottenham's slow starts have been a feature of the last couple of games. And even the 4-0 win against Crystal Palace, all four goals come in the second half. You know, they're 2-0 down at half-time to Brentford. They fall behind to Aston Villa. Um, You're kind of watching this and going, what is going on? And why can't Spurs get going in games quickly? That's, I think, the biggest mystery in this side. And why they they have that capacity to, to not be able to play in the first opening minutes of games and, and get pegged back has been a massive problem. And we saw that in the derby against Arsenal, who took full advantage of that early on and never really looked in danger of, of giving way, even though Tottenham were better in the second half. I want to wrap up by going to Germany in the Bundesliga. We had today Borussia Dortmund being Augsburg 4-3 with a Geo Reyna winner in the 78th minute. Yeah. Uh, Jack, I want, I want to get your thoughts a, not only on Jude Bellingham and his future, because, we, you know, with a player like that, we know he's destined for a big move. But I also want to get into Gio Reyna and him scoring a, a, a wonderful goal uh, following all this off-the-field off uh, turmoil, should I say. Um, it, it was almost like Reyna is trying to put that in the past and, and showing his quality rather than um, his, his family issues. Yeah, I think this is it, right? We're, we're talking about a, a kind of drama that Gerena hasn't obviously been, you know, he's not, he's not the hero in. But equally, I think the position he's been put in is one that maybe isn't completely of his own making. Um, obviously, his family have decided to step in in the situation. But equally, you know, there, there is an element here where he, he might be looking at that and going, I just kind of want to play for my country and want to play football. And obviously, he would have been frustrated by some of the, the issues that had gone on at the World Cup and his lack of playing time. But equally, you know, he's got to go back to his club now and be like, and put, put his hands up and be like, Look, this is this is all I'm trying to do here is play, play well um, and create moments that mean that I'm up for selection and I'm trying to prove my case as being, you know, one of the USMNT's best players. I think that's where we're at, right? So, you're, you know, you have a moment like this where, I mean, Borussia Dortmund today were incredibly Borussia Dortmund, is maybe how I would put it. You, you look at actually <laughs> the performance and the fact to go ahead three times and be pegged back three times is not only very Bundesliga, but feels really on brand. For, for Dortmund this season. Um, so for him to step up and score, as you say, a wonderful winner in a in a very tricky situation where it looked like, for all, for all it's worth, that, that Dortmund were actually going to, to only get a point in a game that they led three times. 
is a massive statement for him. And obviously the celebration where he, he made the kind of lots of chat gesture with his hands and then put his fingers in his ears, I think suggests that maybe he's like, I, I just want to play. I want to get on the pitch and, and, and make my case in that regard. And I think that's got to be seen as a good thing for the USMNT. Yeah, I, I think right now he's just trying to block out the noise because that's that's the most healthy thing for his career. The more he thinks about everything else going on, the more it's going to be in his head and it might impact his play. Uh, Jack, I want to get into Jude Bellingham scored the opening goal for Dortmund. Uh, we've seen rumors with Real Madrid, Liverpool, other moves to you know possibly maybe back to City. Um, what are your thoughts on him as a player and, and kind of what are his best attributes and where would he fit if he did make a big move in the summer? I think when you're looking at a player like Jude Bellingham, it, it kind of almost doesn't matter. You could put Jude Bellingham in a two-man midfield. You could put him in a three-man midfield. You can ask him to do everything. And, and obviously, there's the, the famous story of why he wears 22, you know, for being an eight, a 10, and a, what, a, what he calls a four, but I would call a six, you know, the, the deepest line player. I think he has such a broad skill set that you could almost drop Jude Bellingham in anywhere and he would thrive. I, I kind of like the Real Madrid links. I, I think it, it'll be very interesting to see, you know, someone who's left the Premier League to kind of make their statement, not immediately rush back as soon as the offers fall on the table and to go and play for a club with the size and prestige of Real Madrid would be quite something, I think. You also then look at that team and you go, right, that's a midfield that then includes Chiumeni, Camavinga, Valverde and Bellingham, four of the brightest midfield talents, you know, under the age of 24, 25. And you're going, okay, can anyone stop Real Madrid? Now, obviously, the, the answer to that question probably lies in the fact that across the, the other side of El Clasico, Barcelona have Pedri and Gavi, and they're probably trying to keep up with the fact that those two look like world beaters and, and are also young midfield superstars. So there's plenty to like about that move. I think it, it'd be very interesting, but you could drop Jude Bellingham in anywhere. And there's a reason that you'd imagine Liverpool are absolutely fiending for Jude Bellingham, because... He fills that gap that seems to be gaping in the whole of Liverpool's midfield. And he provides this kind of moment to be like, right, we are resetting. We are building around Bellingham. And that makes plenty of sense. But, you know, there, there are plenty of things. Can you, could you see him as a long-term Granite Chaka replacement at Arsenal? I think the answer is probably yes. And would that cement Arsenal as if they were to go on and win the title this year, or even if they were to come close, if they brought Bellingham in in the summer, would that solidify them as, as bona fide title contenders for a few a few years? I think the answer to that question might be yes. Um, would he absolutely thrive and, and would Chelsea need him? Yes, because I think when you're looking at N'Golo Kante, much as he's been an absolutely unbelievable footballer for so long, we are, we are looking at the end of his career, I think, in terms of being able to play regularly week in, week out. And I hope I'm wrong about that. Um, because it's been such a joy watching Kante play. But over the course of, of the last few years, I think we're seeing that Kante is struggling consistently now with injuries and remaining fit. And Chelsea need to look at that area. You know, obviously we saw the links with, with Enzo Fernandez earlier in the January transfer window. They need to think about planning long term for the future of their midfield. Um, and, and so when you're looking at all these different elements... They, they all make sense, don't they? I mean, Bellingham could play anywhere and I think he would thrive pretty much everywhere he went. Now, Jack, I, I kind of want to now wrap up. I lied before. I want to wrap up with the news of Juventus's 15-point uh, deduction yeah. over transfers. Um, not necessarily getting into the, um, the investigation and all that uh, because we're still waiting on details. Still waiting on details. But 
how does this 15-point deduction affect Juve's chance at the top four and Champions League play for next year? Um, I think when you're when you're looking at it, you, you kind of look at Juventus and think, is this a better scenario for them than what 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 they have right now? Is it better for them to be 15 points behind in a in a or, or lose 15 points in a title race that it looked like they were kind of out of anyway? Um, or is it better for them to start next season 15 points down and maybe have Champions League football? I think it's harder to, for, for Juventus to attract players if they started next season 15 points down than if they miss out on Champions League football from looking at it from a kind of league perspective. I think there's every chance that if Juve get this right and, and they get those players back to full fitness that they need the likes of Lavic, Chiesa is obviously coming back. We're looking at Di Maria returning. There's plenty of, of things here that you go, could Juventus win the Europa League? I mean, the answer is probably yes. I don't, I don't, I don't think they're necessarily favourites, but I definitely think that it's a plausibility. Um, whereas when you're kind of looking at next season, if you're going to go, we're probably not going to challenge for the title because we're starting 15 points back, I think it's harder to pull players in. Now, what the kind of financial ramifications are in terms of keeping hold of players does Vlavic stay? And, and, you know, there's been plenty of interest rumoured from the Premier League for him as well. But over the course of it, it just feels like that Juve have suffered a big punishment. Yes, the 15 points. I think it feels, from what I've read, relatively fitting as a punishment. But I also think that Juve might end up getting away with one in that I think this is probably a better time, considering that Napoli and, and that result at Napoli, that you obviously the 5-1, it felt like they were kind of away from this title race anyway. And so actually getting hit with that points total now rather than the start of next year might actually end up being a long-term benefit. Well, Jack, it's been a pleasure talking with you today, kind of recapping the weekend. We still have a few more games left uh, today. Barcelona wrapping up. We got Real Madrid and, of course, Fulham tomorrow against Tottenham. You want to send us home, Jack? Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and also Juventus, who Alessandro points out, play Atalanta in 30 minutes. Can we interested and see how they react on the pitch uh, to those off-field issues. But um, thank you so much for listening to today's The Athletic Soccer Show. This has been your live weekend review. We hope that you've enjoyed being a part of this. Thank you for all of your comments. Thank you to everyone that jumped on the stream as well. And thank you so much to my co-host today, Mr. Mike Zimmerman. Thanks so much, Jack. Uh, I've been Jack Collins. This has been the Athletic Soccer Show. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next week. Take it easy, Ken. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.